Every day is a brand new adventure. So let's embark on this journey together. City News 570 presents Kitchener Today. Well, welcome and good afternoon. This is Kitchener Today, and I'm your guest host today, Ian McLean. I'm the president and CEO of the Greater Kitchener Waterloo Chamber of Commerce. Um, I, I would, I just wanted to start before we get started. I, 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 I would say James Sebastian Scott, when uh, when Brian took his uh, took his leave from the station, asked if I would cover a show uh, or so um, on Friday, and I said I've got Friday afternoons. I'm I'm available, and I made the mistake of offering him five Fridays. I thought he was picking one, but I gather he said free labor is the best kind of labor, so he took all five of them. And so I'm delighted to, as long as I don't get booted out um, be before uh, before the five weeks are up, to be uh, be with you five of the next six Fridays, and uh, and I really uh, I do um, look forward to the opportunity. My apologies in advance if I do make any reference to business to business, because as some of you will know, I host uh, business to business on City News five seventy Sundays at noon with my colleague Greg DeRocher. Um, so, um, uh, this is, this is a, this is a fun change from that. Uh, I do look forward to spending the afternoon with you all and, uh, to Brittany and, and the, the crew at 570 in the new studio. Uh, thanks so much for, uh, for taking care of us today. This afternoon, I want to, uh, we'll have some really interesting guests, some of my favorite people. Um, we're going to talk about hospitality and tourism in just a minute. Uh, we're going to talk about all things business with the uh, aforementioned, uh, Greg DeRocher. Uh, my colleague from the Cambridge Chamber. We're going to talk with uh, about, and I'll just leave it this: political memoirs. We're going to we're going to uh, talk to someone who spent eight years in in public life. We're going to talk with one of the presidents of uh, the hospitals here in the region about hospital issues and and what our needs are moving forward. And uh, and then with uh, with my f- colleague Tony about some of the real successes we've had here in the region of Waterloo. So full show. Really looking forward to uh, to getting going on this. Um, but right off the top, we're joined by uh, a new friend of mine, Alistair, Alistair Scorgi, and he is the Director of Sports Hosting at Explore Waterloo, and um, we look forward to having a, a bit of a chat. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Ian. I'm honoured to be uh, one of your first Friday afternoon guests. Uh, the first. Feels, you are the first. Feels like you're like the celebrity uh, host of The Tonight Show, and, and I got to be the first one to go through the ringer. So uh, yeah. I'm really excited. Thanks for having well, me. Well, I think that you, you're, it's a loose interpretation of celebrity that you use, but I'll take the compliment. I, I did tell the news director that you get what you pay for, and since this is free, that he's getting everything he paid for. Um, but listen, Alistair, you know, your, your role, and now for, for people that don't know, Explore Waterloo, um, tell us what that is, but it's really effectively the Association for Hospitality and Tourism in Waterloo Region. Tell us about um, about Explore Waterloo and, and who it represents. Uh, yeah, so Explore Waterloo Region is the, we, the destination management organization for the region. So uh, works on all things tourism. Uh, our membership is made up primarily of, you know, the attractions, hotels, restaurants, uh, partners in the community and our main role is to try and support what's happening in the region to generate tourism generate visits you know support arts culture sport all those pieces and, and showcase the region uh, to Canada and the world you know, maybe before we're going to dig into sports marketing because there's uh, and there's I think it's uh, when we dig into this people will be amazed at how much economic economic activity and 
uh, how much it benefits Region of Waterloo when people come for their tournaments of every description. Um, but let's talk about just in general. And I know I've spent a good part of the last two years with with your your uh, outgoing CEO Minto Schneider mm-hmm. uh, and your incoming CEO Michelle Cern is uh, is um, is has become a great colleague and friend in the short time she's been on board. But hospitality and tourism have got to be the one sector of of uh, business that has been hardest hit right from the beginning and is unfortunately is still the the last to fully recover. What's that been like? I mean, you guys have done a great job as a as a team to try and be working with those um, th- those businesses, whether it's restaurants, hotels, venues, attractions like Bingamans, um, to really you know get the message out, but to support business here in Waterloo Region. What's been, what's that been like for you guys? What has that been like? Uh, words that come to mind: tumultuous, uh, unprecedented. Um, it's it's certainly been a challenge because we're not in control of what's happening. Uh, it's it's forced us to be very reactive to uh, what has happened with COVID, um, what has happened at the government level with you know the changes around capacities and restrictions and opening and closing. Um, so really, it, it's we've had to be dynamic and flexible and, and just try to be the best support that we can. Um, it's always good news like this week when things get better um, and our businesses are able to, you know, get more back to normal. Uh, But we're always kind of, you know, have our eye on the horizon with, you know, what if things get worse again uh, and how are we going to be a support? So it's been a challenge, um, but I think, you know, the whole community has really been supportive of each other um, just trying to get through it um, to get to the other side and, and hopefully get back to normal. Well, I think that that's a, that's a it's a good way to describe it is is that getting back to normal and doing the things that we all like to do, and and obviously the chambers of commerce and others and elected officials and healthcare um, uh, professionals have been wanting to get back to this point too because the fun things that animate our community, whether it's art galleries or theater or you know the Rangers game or um, the, the the Kitchener Panthers, any of the things that we like to do, which are the fun things to do um, uh, have been have been in short supply for the last uh, uh, 24 months and 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 maybe that that's a good good segue to talk about something that I certainly have missed I'm a father of uh, of two uh, two teenagers one played rep volleyball the other one rep basketball and we're just starting to get back into uh, into in some of those sports but those sports activities, particularly in, in you know minor sports where they have tournaments, whether it's baseball, hockey, basketball, volleyball, uh, those those have been uh, you know they've been non-existent effectively for two years. How has that impacted um, the local economy? Significantly, uh, sports a big part of our DNA here in Waterloo Region. Uh, it it makes up a, a pretty big percentage of. Uh, certainly hotel business uh, that we get. I mean, you can look at it across a spectrum of, you know, minor hockey tournaments all the way up to, you know, larger scale national championships. Uh, it, it drives tons of visitors to the region. Uh, so not having those is, has certainly had a, a big impact economically. Uh, it's had a big impact on the community. Uh, usually those sporting events are, are a really key part of the growth of sport at a local level. 
Um, it makes it easier for athletes to compete and more affordable to compete because they can do it here instead of having to travel elsewhere. So it's been a huge loss uh, and, and it's dependable business. Um, you know, one of the big challenges with tourism and COVID is, has been everyone's comfort level with traveling, with, with going out away from home and sport is something that if you know that tournament's coming up, you can count on it. So for our hotel partners in particular, uh, I think they're really excited to see big events coming back. Listen, one of the things that, that, that struck me, and of course I was a city councillor for, for years. And so, you know, and dealing with rec and leisure at the local uh, council level, um, but what always struck me is that this is a it's a it's quite a dance because you have um, when you're doing bigger tournaments uh, and we'll talk in a second about like the Ontario Volleyball Association provincial championships, which are all here in the region of Waterloo. Um, you've got hundreds and hundreds of teams over five weeks. It's big business, but it also is b- business. It brings in hotel rooms and restaurants and people need to eat and do all those fun things when they are here. But it rests on on uh, government investment and having the facilities, um, to, you know, like a rim park or uh, or the sportsplex in 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 uh, Cambridge or or Kitchener, but also on schools. I mean, for a basketball tournament, most of those are running in high school gyms. Um, so, how do you you know what's the what's how do you try and keep coordinated on? What are the facilities that are available? I mean, that must be a part of every one of the bids that you're part of is where do we get the facilities and how do we put the uh, the jigsaw puzzle together? It's a lengthy list uh, and it's tough to stay on top of. Um, I mean, we, we've got a big spectrum. You know, you look at kind of a top tier entertainment venue like the Odd, which certainly has the capacity to do a lot. Uh, but that it goes all the way down to you know the more local community type venues, um, and all, ultimately it's all about finding the right fit, uh, and and doing it far enough out that we can make it fit into what's happening in the community. Most of our sport venues are municipally owned, mm-hmm. uh, or their education, whether it's universities or colleges or high schools. So when we bring an event into town, no matter what the scale is. Uh, we're trying not to be too disruptive to what's happening locally. Um, you know, we still have minor sport programs that are running community programs, you know, whether it's leisure swimming or pickup hockey. Uh, we're trying not to to get in the way of that. So uh, where that's been a challenge with COVID, normally a lot of the lead time that we have to to plan those events and avoid disruption has kind of gone away. We've had to, you know, figure things out on the fly and, and adjust quickly. And I've got all the sympathy in the world for anyone who's been doing scheduling in the last two years, because yeah. we are still trying to figure out where to put things uh, and how to mitigate the effects of closures, reopenings and events being postponed and rescheduled. It's It's been a huge challenge. Yeah, and, and I mean, as a at the Chamber of Commerce, we we do a lot of events, and I can't tell you the number of times we've had to shift and adjust uh, as we were doing planning, and events would be up and running, and then we'd have to push them off. Yeah. And that's the, that's okay when it's a smaller event, fifty or a hundred people. It gets pretty complicated when you're trying to have nine hundred people to a to a to a, an event, or in your case, you've got hundreds and hundreds of teams in some cases coming in, hotels being booked. Um, I guess that's been one of the, and, and I think you've raised this already, but that, that I assume has got to have been one of the most difficult parts is 
is because you're I, I I must have for the last years tried to read the tea leaves and see where things are going. Um, and, and no one ever has known where COVID is going and where things have been done. So have you you've worked with all of all of the partners that you have to try and manage through them as they as they happen in real time? Yeah, we uh, a term to borrow from a colleague of mine. Uh, we call it event purgatory where uh, yeah. they're always happening, but sometimes not. Um, you might invest months working on an event that's coming up only to have it canceled at the last minute. Uh, you know, we saw that with, you know, the, the latest wave of COVID in December. Um, I think things were kind of feeling the most normal heading into the, you know, November, December window, and then the rug got pulled out. Um, so it's, it's just this layer of unpredictability. And, and even looking back to 2020, which seems forever ago, we thought by now or by 2023, we'd be out of the woods. And, you know, the events that were two or three years away, we, we'd be in the clear. Things would be back to normal. We'd be fine. And now all of a sudden it's, it's March 2022 and we're still having the same conversations. So the good news is with sport, generally we try to plan pretty far out. Usually it's a few years in advance for a, a really major event. Um, hopefully by next year, fingers crossed, knock on wood, we're in the clear, but uh, it's just, it's always changing. And as soon as you think things are uh, open back up and, and back to normal, you know, sometimes it unpredictably pivots back to things being closed. So what I've tried to do with my role is, is be as much of a support as I can, especially with our municipal partners who are, are dealing with all the day-to-day challenges to try and keep our eye, you know, on the horizon with what's coming down, uh, down the path in the future. All right, we're going to take just a short break um, and come right back uh, with uh, Alistair Scorgi. He is the Director of Sports Hosting at Explore Waterloo, but we're going to take just just a short break. Ian McLean, uh, for those of you not familiar with the voice, I'm Ian McLean, President and CEO of the Greater Kitchenwater Chamber of Commerce in co- uh, or guest hosting, I guess, today. We're joined on the line by Alistair Scorgi. He's the Director of Sports Hosting at Explore Waterloo. Um, let's dive in, Alistair, because one of the ones that is most obvious to me, now I happen to have a daughter who plays volleyball and was in the Ontario Volleyball Championships for, I don't know, five years and I was always pleased as hell because they were in Waterloo every year. And the reason they were in Waterloo for every year is every division at every age, male and female, comes to Waterloo Region over, I think it's five or six weekends in April and into May. Uh, and we have literally hundreds and hundreds of teams that come through. And it is a huge, huge um, undertaking for the venue at Rim Park, but also for folks like yourself. Tell us about that event, uh, the number of people that are involved in it, and what it means to the region from an economic perspective. So from a a numbers perspective, I could toss some out. Uh, The Ontario Volleyball Championships are are one of the largest, if not the largest, sporting event that happens in Waterloo Region. Uh, We've been hosting it pretty regularly since... 2007 maybe 2008 don't quote me on that date uh, but it's, it's been a big part of of the community here uh, it runs across four weekends in April uh, almost every year uh, we haven't had it since uh, 2019 unfortunately but it's back in 2022 but uh, we see about 
570 teams, I think is predicted for this year. Um, that's just under 3000 athletes a weekend, um, about 140 teams a weekend. So just, just a huge number, um, for our hotels, it's about 10,000 room nights, uh, throughout the month, which, which is huge. Uh, and we like to measure, a sporting events impact, we call it economic impact. Uh, and we take all the information, you know, the venue, the hotels, food, transportation, we try to put it all into one pot uh, and spit out a number uh, with the calculator. Um, generally, the Ontario Volleyball Championships does about 15 to 20 million in economic impact in the region, which is, is significant. And that's everything from cash that gets spent to jobs that are created uh, or supported in the hospitality industry. So um, that's the kind of loss that we've we've missed in the last couple of years without events like this happening. Yeah, and, you know, it, it, it's it, the opportunities that are sport venues, whether they're pools or, or volleyball courts, basketball courts, uh, soccer fields, um, beach volleyball, take your pick. They, they provide opportunities for our young, young people, our, our own um, young people, but they also provide this economic opportunity when we do host events like that. Um, what do you see as being the opportunities? Like Waterloo Region is, you know, eight, seven municipalities plus the region. So it's a challenge sometimes to work through that, but we do have a lot of amenities. What are some of the opportunities coming out of COVID that, uh, that we should, we might expect in terms of getting some of these, these large, larger, um, 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 you know, big tournaments and, and other things which drive um, jobs and wealth creation here in Waterloo Region? Well, things are going to be a bit different coming out of COVID. Uh, I think in general, it's leveled the playing field. You know, it, it, historically, the big cities like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, certainly more capable of hosting events. Um, but I think there's more of an appetite to go to smaller communities. And I, I say Waterloo Region is smaller, even though it is growing rapidly. Uh, but we, we've certainly got a bit more bandwidth uh, to take events on and, and give them a bit more care than you might find in one of the bigger markets. Um, but we've got new new venues opening. Cambridge has uh, multiple sport venues that are, are hopefully on track or not to, too delayed by COVID. Um, and we just have to lean into our strengths. You know, we, we know what Waterloo region is. We're, we're a hockey community. Um, we do tons of events there. Uh, soccer is growing. Basketball is growing. Baseball is growing. We're seeing the numbers up. So really events, you know, they're built on our venues, but they're also built on the sport community and the volunteers that, that can support it. So that's where we got to spend our time. Okay, last we're down to our last minute and a half or so, but but I wanted to give you the opportunity. I mean, you talked about partnerships with municipal facilities, the post secondary and their facilities, in private sector, but um, this n- these things don't run without c- two other things: volunteers, uh, but also um, uh, like business partners and sponsors that that help bring these events uh, as you bid on them. Maybe talk a little bit, how do people get involved and who? how can they contact you if they've got interest in being a part of bringing these exciting events to town? Well, you're right, because most of the events that we do uh, in amateur sport, you know, they're nonprofit. So we've got a pretty uh, 
razor thin budget that we're trying to deliver at, at low cost. So uh, volunteers are a huge part. And if uh, you want to be a volunteer at a sporting event, you can either visit explorewaterlyregion.ca uh, or the cities um, and check out ways to volunteer there. And then sponsors and partners, whether it's cash, uh, VIK, just helping to deliver events. Um, you know, we need all the help we can get, especially right now coming out of COVID. Um, partnerships is the way to make events happen. Listen, this has been awesome. You've been such a great guest. My first guest on the show today. I'm going to have you back because there's lots more to talk about. And you were so good at this. So thank you for joining us. We've been joined by our good friend, Alistair Scorgi. He's the director of sports hosting at Explore Waterloo. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me and appreciate it. All right. And it's time for a news break. So coming up after the news, we're going to be joined by the inimitable, the one and only, my co-host of Business to Business, Greg DeRocher. And he, of course, is the president and CEO of the Cambridge Chamber of Commerce. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Well, we're back. And as promised, right here on City News 570 on Kitchener Today, we are joined by the one, the only, the inimitable, Greg DeRocher. And he, of course, is the president and CEO of the Cambridge Chamber of Commerce. And uh, as I've said before, just a refresher, I'm the guest host today on today's show. Uh, Ian McLean, I'm from the Greater Kitchener-Waterloo Chamber of Commerce. And Greg, I've made a commitment to myself. I'm not going to talk about business to business because I'll screw this up because that's our show, which we do on Sundays. But we'll yep. get to that in a minute. Um, I thought what we would do, we're going to spend this half hour together. And then I'm going to probably, because you're so long-winded, that we are going to keep you for another half hour because we got lots to talk about. In fact, there is lots to talk about. Um, but I thought we would start with um, the the last couple of years. We've worked together for uh, coming up on 12 years. Uh, you've mm-hmm. been at the chamber for 120 years in Cambridge, but <laughs> I've only been here for 12 years. But the last couple of years have been really, you know, obviously COVID, but it's it, it has really changed the way our two chambers have worked together. Yeah, and, you know, I think uh, it's always nice to spend time with you, Ian, uh, but I know we spend way too much time together, yes. at least. At least that's my feeling. I don't know how you feel about it, but, but no, it, I, I think, um, you know, in the last two years, I remember way back in, in March of 2020, of course, when this, you know, the, the, the tidal wave kind of hit us and we got smacked in the face and we realized we all had to go home and hunker down and, you know, I think one of the very first conversations I had about about it was you uh, and saying, you know, what, you know, what's next? What do you think? Let's talk about this. And and then, uh, you know, thanks to Tony Lamantia from Best Water to Waterloo or from the Waterloo Economic Development Corporation. You know, he set up the Best Waterloo team, which I, I think from, you know, we've been we've become best friends over the last two years, um, all of us working together and helping uh, small business, but more importantly, helping our community along. But I think really what what we could probably say, and more specific to your your comment or your question, was um, it it really turned the corner of uh, of collaboration between the two chambers. We know, you know, we have symbiotic uh, relationships with businesses in in both communities. Really, you know, there are Cambridge businesses that do business in. Uh, Kitchener Waterloo that are members of yours we have 
you know, uh, Kitchener and Waterloo businesses who do business in Cambridge and are members of ours. And, and you know, we have this this uh, this close connection. And uh, it it was just uh, I I don't think it was by accident. It was it was because that this is the way it should be. We need to work together, um, especially in circumstances like this where it's going to take a united force to be able to help uh, uh, get through uh, the trials that we didn't even know were ahead of us. Um, at yeah. that point. Well, you know, and I think that was one, two of the things I wanted to highlight because I'm certainly best Waterloo, which is the business economic support team of Waterloo region. And that really, as you say, was Tony saying, we all need to be on the same page. Yep. And so we brought all of the economic development or the, the business organizations. So, the Greater KW Chamber, Cambridge Chamber, Waterloo Economic Development, Communitech, and Explore Waterloo, which is the hospitality and tourism. We just had we had Alistair on just just before you um, from from Explore Waterloo, but it, we've always worked closely together. I would say, but not in a coordinated fashion. And I think the one thing that we've we've we and I'll get your opinion. I think the best thing that's come out of this of a silver lining of a very bad situation is that. We know that we are stronger. We have a stronger voice when all five of our organizations talk together, whether it's local politicians, provincial, federal, when they hear best Waterloo, they actually know it's the broader business community. (laughs) And I think that, that, you know, whether it's advocating for all day, two way go hospital tax cuts, things that are going to investments for business. I think that it's going to be, it's going to be a change that will be positive for this region moving forward, long after you and I are gone, I think the working relationship of the organizations is, is really important. Well, and I, and I think, you know, you, you point to that, the, the larger group. I, I think, you know, what, what has set us apart from maybe other areas of the country or the province has been that fact that we've had, you know, uh, so many strong organizations coming to, together, locking arms and and being that single voice of reason to governments as they make decisions, I think right to the very beginning, Ian, and and you remember we were on calls, I think every day for a while with uh, with uh, Industry Canada and yeah. uh, and Francis McRae, who was the ADM at the time, and you know really what we were doing and what I think a, the broader community doesn't know is we were working hand in hand with them every single day to make sure that the supports were right. And they're never going to get them exactly perfect. But I can tell you from the the first announcement that the prime minister made at 10% wage subsidy, we right away were on the very next call saying, that's not good enough. That's not going to keep people employed, which was the intent of the wage subsidy. And, uh, and, and we were able to you know, with our wisdom and the strength of our collaborative voices, we're, be able, we're able to get the uh, prime minister to understand that he needed to raise the bar substantially, which he did. He eventually got it to 75% wage subsidy. And, and so I think, you know, our voice, our collective voices uh, brought that strength and power that otherwise um, other communities maybe um, uh, struggled a little bit with, because how are they going to get through the clutter? And what we did was, eliminate some of that clutter of having, you know, five separate voices or six separate voices going to the government. We brought it down to one focal point. And uh, because we all, you know, our our organizations all work for the exact same thing for the betterment of business and the betterment of our communities. 
Don't you think, and, and I, I, I think that everything you said, I agree with, and, and this is, this is more of an observation than a criticism, but I would say before the pandemic, we always said that in Waterloo Region, we worked collaboratively, worked, we worked together. It wasn't as obvious to me when I look back on it now and say the number of things that not only are our two chambers, but the community has all said, we have to be on the same page. It, it didn't look like this two years ago. It no. was, we said the words, but we all said, oh, well, this is important to Cambridge and this is important to Waterloo and U of W's interests were not Laurier's. I mean, right across the board, that's not a criticism. I think that's just the reality. I think we wanted to do more collaborative working together, but the, and, and to use one of those metaphors, the burning platform wasn't necessarily there because things were good in Waterloo region. Yeah, it took a, a, you know, in some ways it did take this global pandemic for us to say, holy cow, we had better get our collective um, stuff together. I can't swear in this program, so I'll, I'm going to keep it clean. It's a, it's a family show. But we, but I think we, we did, as you just described, we said, we got to come together because there's not a, there's not a Cambridge solution or a Waterloo solution or a, um, you know, a business versus a not-for-profit, we're all in it together. And I think yeah. that, that to me is the, is the systemic change that I hope sticks. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, I think those are the things. There's a couple of trigger points, I think, that have, has really changed. Maybe not our philosophy, because we always got along. You and I were, you and I were good friends long before the yeah. pandemic. You know, we, 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 we see things the exact same. Our organizations represent the same things. Our, our ph- philosophies are, are, are aligned, you know, virtually identically. Uh, so, you know, we, we always had that comfortable relationship, <laughs> I would probably say, as two chamber uh, uh, CEOs. But I think two things happened, and I think uh, that, that are going to be a big benefit, is the other organizations that were brought into this, Waterloo EDC, Community Tech and Explorer, uh, 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 Waterloo Region, now realize that working collectively and collaboratively like this as one brain, as one organization is going to benefit our region as a whole, regardless of serious situations and pandemics and whatever else happens. The other thing that I think you and I have found <clears throat> It's. I was always you and me. You would call me, "Hey, Greg, we want to do this. What do you think? We work on this together." I think now there's there there is an incredible relationship built between our staffs, which are really you know. Let's face it. Um, you know, you and I are are the. I was going to say pretty faces were the ugly faces of the organizations, but. But the fact of the matter is the real horsepower of our organizations come from the people that work within it. And I think what I am so proud of is uh, how our staff came together, your staff and my staff worked on projects, you know, together. You would take the lead on one. We would take the lead on another. And, and you know, everybody worked. Um, in fact, you know, we had your staff down here working packaging kits together to distribute and things like that, that I, I think we maybe would have never thought that that would happen, you know, three or four years ago. But it certainly happened because I think we understand we're stronger together. And, and in the end, uh, I think that's going to make our organizations better for our memberships. Well, uh, d- just building on it, because I think that's that is very true. I think we always talked about collaborating and we did some joint events but and we would do some things together on policy and advocacy through the Ontario Chamber or Canadian Chamber but 
we now actually are delivering programs together. And yeah. and maybe we I, I talk, we let's talk about the formation of chambercheck.ca. So for, for anyone listening, whether they're a business, a not-for-profit, a sports organization, basically anyone in the community can benefit from these free programs and services that we we have put together and basically made it open source for chamber members or not. But we created this out of whole cloth at the beginning of the pandemic. And I, I was going to give you credit, but I think it was actually your wife who came up with chambercheck.ca. But Lisa or you came and said, like, we should have one brand because it's not a greater KW thing that we're designing or a Cambridge chamber. And we wanted it to be community oriented. And we came up with chambercheck.ca. So that to me was the place that when it first started, we weren't sure what was going to be in there, but talk about what are the, like there's a wide variety of things that we've built over two years that are still available right now, even as we're coming hopefully through the, through the end of COVID that have been designed and built and put together uh, for the community benefit. Well, and I think that, I think that was really an important factor for us to be able to deliver, you know, together uh, the programs to the wider business community, because you know, we, we needed to separate it from our membership. We needed to say we're going to be all things to all businesses because that's what we do. Um, so uh, it originally started with Exonify coming to, a, yeah. to you actually first and saying, hey, are you interested in this training program, learning program where you can help businesses understand the importance and the protocols around public health requirements in the workplace and those kinds of things? And there really was nothing out there. There was a a message out from public health, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. But but where was the mechanism in, in there for employers to be able to train their staff and to be able to train themselves? And so Exonify, who have been great partners of ours throughout this, you know, came up with this uh, uh, great program uh, for us to uh, be able to deliver. And, and as you said, we want to take that chamber brand away from it to make it more universally known. And so... Uh, we came up with chambercheck.ca, which is really the program, Chamber Check. It was to uh, really uh, give an opportunity for businesses, small businesses, to be able to have a, ver- a free platform where they can ect- electronically learn what the protocols and their public health requirements were, how to administer it properly, and how to keep your workplace safe. Because we all knew that the most important thing for us to do was to keep our workplaces safe so our employees were were not getting sick, and so our uh, our customers weren't getting sick as well. So it kind of started off there, and as I guess sometimes you and I come up with ideas or our staff come up with ideas, we just kept plugging things into chambercheck.ca, and, and it became an incredibly robust uh, program for um, um, opportunities to connect with uh, um uh, uh, business support programs throughout the prov- provincial government or federal government. It came with, uh, we even put on an Ask the Expert. I used to love the Ask the Experts where you and I would go on. We weren't the experts, by the way. We would always bring in a, a member who uh, who understood uh, the the uh, the laws and the rules. And But, you know, we had a number of people coming on those programs uh, a couple of times a week and getting really valuable information from from uh, our members, our professional members who would come in and give advice free of charge. Uh, and I think you and I were really committed to making sure that uh, that the platform and all the aspects of the platform uh, were absolutely free. So 
Um, you know, I, I think chamber check was one of our, I'm not sure it'll ever go away because we'll, we'll find new ways to use chamber check. Um, and with the relationship that our, our two organizations have internally, not just you and I, but internally, uh, I think it's going to be uh, a great uh, impact for all businesses in the region. Listen, we're going to take a short break um, uh, for a news break um, and come back on the other side. I want to finish off on this line of, uh, of, of topic around the rapid antigen screening testing as part of, of, uh, of chamberjack.ca. Um, and we'll, and then we'll continue on our conversation. We're, we're joined right now with Greg DeRocher. He's the president and CEO of the Cambridge Chamber of Commerce. And you're listening to Kitchener Today on City News 5-7. Well, good to be back. I'm uh, uh, with my good friend Greg DeRocher. Just before the break, we were talking about uh, um, our, our two chambers and working together, and some of our other partners here in Waterloo Region. And 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 Greg is president and CEO of the Cambridge Chamber of Commerce. You've uh, you are the dean of the chambers of commerce here in Waterloo Region because. I only joke that you've been there 120 years, but I believe you're well over 20 years now. Yep. How many years have you been at the chamber? Uh, it'll, it's 21 years, yes. 21 years. And, you know, it just seems like forever for everybody. I'll let that just sit there. <laughs> no, doing great work for 20 years. But one of the things I must admit, I uh, through the pandemic, and, and you've done lots of great work, but I think, the work and the leadership you you uh, provided, and and I do give you credit for the inspiration of how we would distribute distribute rapid antigen screening kits in Waterloo Region, um, which turned out to be the first of its kind in the country. We piloted the program to get rapid screening kits to businesses right across Waterloo Region. I think we should tell that story because I actually think it's 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 you know due to your um, a lot of your leadership, but it's been so important because it's the thing I'm proud about. It's all over the country now and has been a tool that businesses use right across the country. Yeah, you know it, it was interesting. Thankfully, we had uh, the uh, rapid rapid uh, testing czar in the region of Waterloo, Ian Klugman from uh, uh, Communitech at the time, and he was appointed by the federal government to figure out how to. How to, how, to, how to utilize these rapid uh, antigen tests. And he called you and I to a meeting uh, with federal government officials, both from Industry Canada and Health Canada. Um, and we were talking about, you know, some sort of a pilot project where we could put together and, and, uh, and get employees of small businesses and medium-sized businesses screened um, uh, a couple of times a week to make sure that their workplaces were safe. And we looked at, you know, uh, brick and mortar centers where employees would come in and get tested. And, and Ian uh, uh, Klugman and, and his uh, organization with Communitech, they, they came up with a bus, you know, let's, let's get buses going around the municipalities and, and doing rapid screening on the buses and the region came in and, and provided that. You and I, however, talked about, well, you got these small businesses and medium-sized businesses, their employees aren't going to go out of the workplace to get screened and then come back in. We need to actually get them into the workplace. Unfortunately, the province of Ontario had relaxed its uh, rules and regulations around who can screen, so they didn't need to be a health 
professional administering it. You could actually self-swab with a, a short video training. And I can remember laying on the couch um, uh, on a Saturday afternoon and picking up my phone and phoning uh, 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 Charles Vincent from Industry Canada. I said, Charles, I just lay in here thinking, I, I think I got a good idea. What if we just, what if we just house the kits at the chamber? We package them up in, you know, two week or four week bundles for businesses and emailed them out and said, come on and pick up your kits. Here's a registration link. You can order your kits and we'll give you a, a, a date and a time to come and pick them up. And he said, how quickly do you think you could do that? And I said, well, how quickly do you think you can get the kits to my office? And within, you know, a week or so, we were up and running. But what was really funny about it was you and I talking about, well, how do we launch this? How do we bring awareness to it? And, and so you and I had kind of figured, well, we're going to do a press conference right here at the chamber. We, we had the kits here. We had about 4,000 kits, which we thought were a lot of kits at the time. You know, we got 4,000 kits here. Let's, let's do a press conference. So we did, and CTV showed up, and a lot of the media showed up. And you and I on live, on Facebook Live, we actually – showed how easy it was to do yeah. this. Um, I think you coined the term that a well-trained basset hound could do it. Yep. I actually said, you know, a monkey could do it because a couple of monkeys actually did do it. That's true. Um, but, but, you know, we did it, and, and, and then uh, we, we launched the program the very next morning, which was a Wednesday morning, I remember, in April of 2021. And uh, we opened the portal for the website for ordering at 9 a.m. and by... Uh, about 10 a.m., all 4,000 were already taken, or, or and we were kind of panicking. Uh, where am I going to get kits? Um, the program with Communitech was kind of delayed because of the buses, I think, and getting them wrapped and organized and ready. Uh, I phoned Ian Klugman and said, "Do you have any kits?" He says, "Yeah, I got about, I got some at the at the uh, office." I said, "I need some," and he said, "Great, you know, that's fine. Take what you need." So I took them all um, because we needed them all. Um, but, you know, that started us down a path of, of, I think, real relevancy for small and medium-sized businesses in the region where you and I then got together, our staff got together, we started to promote the program, we started to, you know, we ordered kits. Um, just to let everybody know, little hiatus over Christmas because we couldn't get kits. We got a, a, a short supply we're still waiting for a bigger bulk supply coming, you know, hopefully sometime in the next week or so. But since uh, April of 2021, um, uh, the Greater Kitchener-Waterloo Chamber and Cambridge Chamber program has distributed over a million kits to uh, businesses in the region of Waterloo. And what's really interesting about that, it was such a successful program. In fact, Perrin Beattie actually said from the president, uh, president of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, he said, it is maybe the biggest uh, project ever done in the history of Canadian Chambers of Commerce. And now it's right across the country, uh, over uh, 300 chambers from coast to coast to coast are distributing rapid antigen testing kits to small and medium-sized businesses. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And, and, and frankly, I, I, I'm proud that it started here in Waterloo Region. And it's, uh, but it's something we can build on because we know we can put those things together and make it, make it available not only for Waterloo Region, but right, these types of programs right across the country. Listen, it's time for a news break. Uh, so we'll be, um, uh, we'll be back right uh, after a news break with more on Kitchener Today on City News 570. 
Well, we are back on Kitchener today on City News 570. I'm Ian McLean, President CEO of the Greater Kitchener Waterloo Chamber of Commerce, and I'm guest hosting this Friday afternoon. And I thought, who else would I like to have on the radio show as I'm co-hosting? And I thought, the person that I spend more time with than even my dog, who's with me all the time, which is Greg DeRocher, and he, of course, is the President and CEO of the Cambridge Chamber of Commerce, my partner in crime and all things chamber related, co-host of business uh, with with me on business to business, and uh, and before the break, Greg, we talked about our little bit of our history, Best Waterloo, the things we're working together on, which was all COVID related. So I thought we in the next half hour we might touch on COVID as we kind of come to what's next and as we're coming towards the end of it. The important part of that is that we, as we reopen, that we stay open safely. Um, but that COVID has had some impacts and will have impacts on, on global issues, on provincial election upcoming. But I thought maybe a place to start, and I don't necessarily, not that we're publicizing it, but COVID is everywhere. It's still out there. It's a lot of, lot of it in the community. You, uh, I, I said to someone prior to the beginning of December, of 2021, I knew a handful, literally two or three people that had got COVID because we were all staying home. And then probably in, in December, January, and February, I've known personally hundred uh, over a hundred people that have, or their families that have gotten COVID. And amongst the two people that have are in those numbers are you and me. I've just, just recovered from a very mild case of COVID, but, um, you know, Greg, I, I think this was one of the things that, that for a lot of time, you know, people didn't think it was necessarily real, especially for us when we were staying so careful. Um, but I, I was still very careful, but my daughter did bring it home from school and she got it and I got it. And thankfully we we're both vaccinated, but it, it um, this is still COVID still out there. And so we got to manage through this. And as we recover the economy, get back to the things we enjoy, but we still have to manage COVID. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tested positive on December the 18th, and I can remember the week before, of course, you're getting your staff ready for Christmas holidays and things like that. And I'm saying, you know, science is saying that, you know, everybody's going to get this by the time February comes around, you know, so be on your guard over the Christmas holidays. And then, you know, a few days later, I screened positive, um, you know, um, and, and it was it was kind of a funny story, but uh, but not not really because as soon as you see those two lines pop up on your screening test you start to panic internally a little bit because you don't know yeah. what a impact it's going to have on you and, and unfortunately at that point um, I had only had my two shots I had actually got my booster um, two days before I tested positive so the booster wasn't wasn't there but I think I think what uh, you know I think we're all excited about moving to the next step of opening and you know, getting to a, a, a life more normal. And we need to do that for all of our mental health. Um, you know, there there was, I, I think, Polly yesterday had somebody on uh, talking about um, how kids have a difficult uh, difficulty in recognizing people when they're masked. And, you know, and I think about that because we had a grandson in uh, November born and, you um, 
you know, the first, obviously, for quite a while, um, we were all masked up when we would go over and see our grandson. Um, and so he's not, not certainly wasn't going to recognize us, that's for sure. And I think, you know, we all want to get to that stage, but we all have to understand that, you know, it is still out there in a fairly dominant way. Um, it's still moving around. Yes, it's, uh, you know, maybe uh, has less impact to some degree, but but also with the new variant, uh, which will dominate the uh, uh, COVID infections by the, the middle of the month, it's more transmissible. So, you know, there's more likelihood of, of catching it. And, and what we always got to remember is the whole idea of the shutdowns, the lockdowns and keeping people um, apart was was to protect and preserve our healthcare system. And so, you know, we, we have to understand that in spite of the fact that things are lifting, um, which we all support, I know that, which, you know, a lot of us hate these mandates. This is not what we expected out of life. Um, we still have to be on our guard. And, and I think, um, you know, you and I have had discussions about this. Both of us have agreed. We're likely going to continue to wear masks, um, you know, well beyond this when we're in, especially when we're in settings where there's uh, a lot of people. It's it's aerosol. It It's, you know, people can say that masks don't work. Well, when something's in the air, um, it's, it's why uh, construction workers who are sanding uh, drywall wear N95 masks is to keep the stuff out of their lungs. It's it's the same type of thing. So if you want to protect yourself, you know, use your own judgment, but, uh, but be kind and understanding to those who want to keep their distance, who want to uh, make sure that they keep their own protocols in place, because it's going to be a different time, especially uh, for the next several months, as we see what happens with uh, reducing the requirements and the restrictions in the public places. Yeah. It, it's um, we're we're not past it to be sure, and I guess one of the things um, that where where we've always pivoted to, and I, I think this is just a general conversation beyond business, but for the community is the question that needs to be asked is we can it's it's one thing to take away some of these public health measures, which you know the hospitalizations and death and ICU admissions would those things are trending in the right direction. But the important part is the staying open part that when we hit next flu season, which is what next mid October, just after Thanksgiving, um, we know, I think everyone expects there to be a spike, but how much of a spike and how are we able to manage it? You and I have discussed this and I think people recognize the reason we've had to close down uh, the economy the last three of four, I guess, uh, of the lockdowns or, or business closures is because the healthcare system was going to be overwhelmed. So yeah. some of those questions of how do we stay open is, are we investing in the healthcare system and hospitals and other things so that when we have periods of infection, that we don't have to close down? And I guess that's that's the thing for me is that what do we need to do differently to manage through because COVID hasn't disappeared. You always say this, it hasn't gone anywhere. We can manage it, but it also involves us doing some things differently. And, and I, I just wonder whether the community is ready for that. 
Well, it, you know, I, I, I hope they are. I, I, I certainly hope we can get past all of the rhetoric that we've seen, uh, you know, over the months, recognizing if individuals want to continue to protect themselves, please let them can protect themselves. If businesses, you know, you, you could be going into a business that's still going to require the vaccine passport or still require masking in there or still going to keep distancing. You, you don't know that the owner of that business might be immune compromised. And that's why they're doing, they're trying to protect themselves and their employees. So just be kind and understanding to others when they do this. But I had a, and this kind of leads into something that we're going to want to talk about, uh, uh, Ian, uh, about the upcoming election. I had an interesting conversation with uh, with uh, an individual who is well versed on the subject. Let's put it that way. I won't name who it was, but the the hospital system or the healthcare system in 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 Ontario, in particular, uh, we were talking about, is built to the capacity that that we required, and and this was pre pandemic, so everything was built out to what what we kind of required. Most hospitals prior to the pandemic were running at, you know, nearly 90%, 80 to 90% capacity. That means they were already generally kind of filled up, right? There were, yeah, there were beds for emergencies and things like that and, and, and unknown circumstances that might happen on a given day. But, but largely the vast majority of, of the hospital was full. And we understand that's what we're paying for this system. You know, we don't want empty rooms sitting there all the time, never being used. So that's the capacity that was, was in the hospital system. And all of a sudden now you throw a pandemic in the way and, you know, you haven't got much margin in there to be, to be able to play with. And people are coming into the hospital and need to be hospitalized and, 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 uh, and, and isolated. Um, You know, it causes a strain on the system. So I think, you know, from my perspective, yes, I hope the community and the people who live in it are prepared, but I certainly hope that the politicians and the governments are prepared to address this as well, so that not if, but when the next pandemic comes, um, we are much better prepared from a from an infrastructure perspective to be able to manage and handle um, some of the situations that that we saw. Uh, through this pandemic, you know, it, the economy is important. I tell people this all the time. There are two (coughs) major things in society. One is health. And we want to make sure that, that we have a healthcare system and that our, our population is healthy, but we also need to have a strong economy. And those two are measured kind of equally because you, in order to have a healthy society and have a healthcare system that's strong and vibrant, you need to have a strong economy that can support that cost. And so, you know, I hope that the government coming in in June, whoever that might be, is looking at that and finding ways not to dip into the taxpayer's pocket to do this, but to find out ways where we can be more robust in our ability to ramp up the capacity of our healthcare system. That is the most essential thing we, we, we need to look at down the road. Yeah, I guess, I guess the last thing just is, is, is to build on what you're talking about is that we, as we come out of COVID, um, I think what's been laid bare is that there is in some investments in public infrastructure and public services that need to be continued because we've been, they've been exposed as being lacking. And then the follow on then is at some point, we're going to have to start to pay the piper, pay the, pay the bill. And the real question for me or the concern that I have is to, is to not make the mistake that you can either cut your way 
to solving that problem or tax your way to that problem. Really, and this is where I guess we both put our pom-poms and our chamber hats on and say, the private sector has to lead the recovery and lead growth and create the jobs and, and you know, get those trained people so that we can create the economic um, um, environment where we can take advantage because the whole global, I mean, there will be pent up demand, not only across the region, but across the country, across the world. We've got to be ready to, to, to take advantage of that. And there's uh, that, that's one of the things that, that is, that we have to be, and I guess that's what we're going to be vigilant along. We've got a provincial election in June. We got a municipal election in November. Who knows when there's going to be a federal election, probably maybe next spring, but uh, we're never far away from another election and it's going to take the business community saying, here's the role we can play to get ourselves out of this last two year, uh, two years of, of, of COVID. Yeah. I, I, there's no question about that. I think, you know, we, business doesn't, you know, unfortunately government kind of doesn't look at, at, at it like business does. Um, uh, business looks at it and says, well, we need more resources. We need more money to be able to expand. So they figure out ways to do more business and get more, more revenue coming in the door. And I think, uh, you know, as you pointed out, um, you know, what government needs to do is to find its way through here by not taxing more, but by building more and creating more uh, uh, revenue capacity within the, uh, the system that we have. And that's going to take people and that's going to take businesses uh, doing the things that they need to do. All right. We're going to take a quick break just for a, uh, for a news break. We'll be back right after the news break with Greg DeRosa, President and CEO of the Cambridge Chamber of Commerce. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. And we're back with one, the inimitable, Greg DeRosa, President and CEO of the Cambridge Chamber of Commerce, my co-host on Business to Business, partner in crime and all things chamber related. Greg, I guess that, the, you know, we've got in the last, uh, I don't know, 10 minutes that we have or so, eight minutes that we have, one of the things that is another thing that's been laid bare through through COVID and now as we start the recovery um, is supply chains and, and how mm. affected we all are, by every sector of business, by different supply chains. And given the terrific and, you know, human um, indignity that's happening in Ukraine, um, we are all affected when global issues hit somewhere else around the world but they will impact local economies, and and it's something that um, that that we are all too aware of, and as as business uh, as business leaders, yeah, we're you know as as everyone I think well understands we're globally connected, you know, from a business perspective now, and when there's you know a catastrophe in one part of the world, um, it's going to have an impact, and might not have an impact in every single sector, but. But there are going to be sectors, and I can tell you um, what some of the, my international contacts are saying is that um, uh, semiconductors, and I, you know, I'm I'm not quite sure what industries need semiconductors, but it sounds familiar to me, and so it sounds like a lot of industries use semiconductors, and um, and and they're they're going to be uh, in short supply as a result of the uh, crisis in Ukraine. So, you know, we have to be mindful of that. We didn't have a really good supply chain in place during the pandemic. We know we had problems there. We didn't have a great supply chain or a perfected supply chain prior to the pandemic. 
And all of these disruptions um, are, are catastrophic. So it's, you know, we've got uh, a pandemic that causes disruption in the supply chain. We've got uh, floods out in British Columbia that caused, you know, uh, uh, problems in the supply chain in Canada, washed out rail lines and roads um, and made it impossible to get cargo out of the harbor in Vancouver. Um, and and now, now we've got a war that uh, that is happening that's, you know, disrupting business in the Ukraine, who is a, a real large steel and metal uh, supplier to um, uh, certainly to Europe, but also in the global supply chain. And so it's going to cause um, a, a lot of disruption and, uh, and business needs to be mindful of that. And, and uh, I think governments around the world need to be mindful of that and, and mitigate uh, as much of the problem as they possibly can. Yeah. You know, and I guess that one of the things that, that as we start thinking about the provincial election, uh, June the 2nd, um, one of the issues that has, has obviously been top of mind for us is, is the procurement, using domestic procurement, whether it's on, and obviously things like domestic PPE, when there, we had periods of time when we couldn't get any masks and, and, uh, and you know, any number of different, whether it's uh, um, uh, medical, medical grade masks or other things that we just couldn't get a hold of. But we also see it more broadly now of, of those domestic supply chains really are, are going to be important. And that means domestic um, incenting domestic procurement so that we are buying locally. But, you know, that's one of the issues that certainly we will be raising in the election. What do you think of the, at the broader, broadest level? What will the next election be about? Boy, um, you know, I, I think um, I think it's I think largely maybe it's going to drill right down to leadership. It's going to be, you know, who is going to be the best leader that's going to lead us forward as a result of the economic and health damage that we've seen in the last two years? Um, You know, I I personally feel that, you know, if I was one of the leaders, I'd be trying to concentrate on leadership. Um, um, You know, we, we can promise the world we can, you know, give money here and dump money over there and put promises out that, that, you know, I can, I always say, you know, I remember uh, in high school, you know, school presidents would be saying, well, I'm going to put a pot machine at every intersection of the hallways. <laughs> and, you know, those are goofy, crazy, little tiny things. What we really need. And I think what we've seen right around the world is, you know, we need leadership, leadership that is open and understanding to the, the uh, the the missing things and components, um, and I think there's not a sector, not just healthcare, but not a sector that hasn't realized there's there's something missing, and uh, we need leadership to be able to address all those things. Well, I think elections are always about choices, and I, I guess this is a, I've, I've been dancing around this, but I think I'm zeroing in on the questions when we have because we'll be hosting a lot, and you'll be you'll be at some of these sessions each of the four provincial leaders in the coming weeks in late February and early March or uh, late March, early April. And I've been trying to boil it down. What, what's the question I'm going to ask those provincial leaders to say? And the real question is, what's your plan? What's your plan to reopen the economy and keep it open? And that will mean detailed questions around what are you going to invest in healthcare? What are you going to do in education to make sure that you know, kids are in school and not shut uh, l- learning from home. 
but also that we're developing the talent in colleges and universities. What infrastructure are you going to invest in? But it doesn't lend itself to bumper stickers because these are complex questions. And I think then it comes back to what you're talking about, which is leadership to pick the lane you're going to be in. So uh, listen, I want to thank you. You took pity on me today and and because you're always a, a great uh, a great source of conversation. But thank you for, for taking an hour out of your busy day today to join us here on Kitchener Today on City News 570. We've been joined by my good friend, Greg DeRocher, President and CEO of the Cambridge Chamber of Commerce. We're going to head to a news break now. Um, and right after the uh, after the news, we'll be joined by Tony Lamantia. He's the President and CEO of the Waterloo Economic Development Corp- Corporation. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Well, welcome back to uh, Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm Ian McLean, President and CEO of the Greater Kitchener Water Chamber of Commerce, guest hosting today and with uh, producer Polly. Thanks for, for uh, to him for making me look as good as is humanly possible, which is not very, very much, but uh, uh, doing a great job in the studio. As promised, we're joined by my good friend, Tony Lamantia. He is the President and CEO of the Waterloo Economic Development Corporation. And a good friend of mine, we just had Greg DeRocher on, Tony, for about, uh, for the last hour, we talked about a number of things, one of which includes, uh, included the importance of, of uh, the work that we have collectively done through, through Best Waterloo, the Business Economic Support Team of Waterloo Region. But we may get to that later in, the, in this half hour. I wanted to start, you were, just as you were coming on, you say there's some breaking news, which is, I think, good news on a very difficult um, story for all of us as we think about the Ukraine and the devastation and the human misery and economic turmoil that it's creating. But um, I'll just throw it to you. There's some breaking news of which Waterloo Region can rightfully be proud. Yeah, totally. And and thanks for having me on. I, I, I'll admit that when you asked, I thought, I can't catch a break. This is like the third time in a week. And after, uh, you know, the best Waterloo leadership team meetings, but actually, you know, kidding aside, um, this is a heavy time. And by heavy, I mean, there's a lot of weight on what we're seeing in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. It's it's actually quite shocking. And um, as luck would have it, Waterloo Region, and in particular, my team and the feds and the province are stepping up to uh, provide assistance to a new local company called EPAM Systems. Now, EPAM has made a commitment to down, uh, downtown uh, Kitchener. Uh, you know, obviously the largest city in Waterloo region. They are a globally significant uh, tech and software consulting company, uh, you know, great reputation. And they announced their commitment to expand in Waterloo region as their first Canadian location late last year. Wow. And as, as luck would have it, you know, talk about necessity driving, you know, these states of exception where everybody ha- actually has to uh, step up. 14,000 of their employees, and they have about over 50,000 globally, but 14,000 of their employees are living in Ukraine, right? And so you can imagine that their boardrooms yeah. are, you know, are daycare centers these days. And, and, and uh, you know, there's, we, we, you know, you, you couldn't even walk a day in, in their shoes, right? And uh, through their local rep and um, their team in Poland, the company is working very hard and reached out for our help in relocating uh, talent. So that's, you know, we're playing a very active role on that front. The company today announced a $100 million fund uh, to support employees and their families in Ukraine. Uh, they also discontinued all their services to customers located in Russia. 
They don't do any work for the Russian government and are fully complying with all of the sanctions. So this is a potential, you know, obviously, apart from being a win-win, you know, think about their commitment to downtown Kitchener. They're really excited to be part of our community. But uh, this will be a story that unfolds in the in the weeks and months ahead. And we're doing everything we can. Listen, partnership is about, you know, you've heard the expression after the commitment, the real work starts, right? So they made a commitment to Waterloo. Who knew that so soon after this decision, uh, we'd all be mobilized to try to help relocate uh, talent and families. They will be offering jobs uh, to the talent they relocate, but there's lots of work ahead. And, um, you know, it's it's a way for Waterloo Region and my organization and my team members, uh, specifically Aaron and Catherine, who really stepped up here. So um, we'll, we'll definitely keep you posted. But it it's uh, it's a way that uh, what's happening in Eastern Europe, like, I mean, we're so connected, is, is actually yeah. having an impact here right in the heart of Waterloo Region. Yeah. You know, we, we uh, Greg and I, for this week's edition of Business to Business on Sunday at noon, uh, on, on 570, we had Perrin Beattie, uh, the president and CEO of the Greater or of, uh, um, Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Of course, he was the uh, he was an industry minister. He was a defense minister. And so we were picking his brain around the imp- impact of the Ukrainian situation, not only in European, but it's it, the cascading effect it's having it across around economies right around the world and and, and the human cost of 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 having over a million refugees already from Ukraine with more I'm sh- surely to follow. This is the kind of uh, this is the kind of leadership that Waterloo region is known for. We welcome thousands of Syrian refugees uh, a number of years back and so it's it's this is another one of those examples of where I'm sure the community as a whole will uh, will step up and and the companies that that do business here know that uh, that these are the types of things that people value seeing and in turn will support the company so that thank you for breaking that with us i guess that that will maybe as we pivot to um you know economic growth in waterloo region and i i i'll I'll let you toot your own horn a little bit because it's rightfully so we just had last week i believe or the last week or two tsx dropped uh, or rang the bell here in in at the community tech hub first time it's been rung outside of the tsx in toronto ever and they came to a little old sleepy Waterloo region, which I was tongue in cheek. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you've also had a huge year of of attracting and having businesses make investments and and say they're going to set roots here in Waterloo region, even in the midst of of um, of, of this global pandemic. So, you know, I'm always looking for the silver linings or the green shoots of what's been a pretty crappy two years. Tell us about that the the success that's happened and how that's going to. Uh, you know, further cement our reputation as a place to do business. Well, talk about wrapping a ribbon around uh, all the awesomeness in Waterloo Region. I was I was really pleased to join Chris Albinson, the team at Communitech, uh, you know, the, uh, the regional chair mayors, all of the key stakeholders for the TSX ringing of the bell. I mean, look, there's been so much growth uh, in Waterloo Region, so many new unicorns, VC investment. That event, to me, marked a... Um, you know, animation of, of the, the strength, you know, almost a coming of age of Waterloo Region and, and a really important milestone, which signals future growth. It was it was a wonderful event. Uh, some of the leading company reps were there. Uh, you know, Eldon uh, Sprickroff from uh, eCentaur was in the audience. John Baker uh, was was there, D2L, the most recent uh, IPO um, on the TSX, listen to Martin Baziri from Applied Board. What a wonderful story that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, you know, uh, it, it's 
a it was a uniquely kinder, gentler uh, Waterloo region kind of uh, with an edge. You know, a mission to make the world a a better place fits in neatly with the tech tech for good. Um, you know, rallying cry and and uh, there's just so much good that's going on. But you know, you're right when you talk about we've been through a hell of a two years. Um, you know, 2020 was about unprecedented times and, you know, uh, you know, governments taking precautions, going to areas where they haven't gone before lockdowns as an organization, you'll remember that we made the decision to pivot Mm -hmm. to support, support PPE uh, production because there was quite a, quite a gap and it ended up being very good for business. Uh, We did better than the year before. And then entering 2021, we had the promise of vaccines and we had the promise of a lot of, investment decisions, both from local companies wanting to grow, but also from from new Greenfield investments, they were parked in 2020 because they took a wait and see attitude. And uh, 2020 ended up being a record year for us, you know, 16 investments over 363 million, um, you know, over 700 new jobs created, thousands retained. So it was a really strong year. And it was a testimony to the ability of the community stakeholders and organizations like mine and the chambers and the tourism folks to pivot to where the necessity was. And that ended up being really good for business. And 2021 was really kind of the beginning of what I hope will be a a pendulum that swings back towards not just human contact, but, uh, but uh, decision-making regarding new investment and more important, probably most important, having our local companies to continue to expand, uh, you know, raise money, grow, um, invent the future, as we like to say. And so uh, it's um, as much as, uh, as you know, we started off with the challenges in Central and Eastern Europe, you know, when I look at the the companies and the leadership in the, in the community and what we're actually up to these days, I, um, you know, I, I have a lot of optimism that, that you know, essentially guides my, uh, my day-to-day life. I'm really excited about what we can do in the future. Well, I think that we all need to hold on to some of that hope. We know that COVID hasn't gone away, that there's still a lot out in the community, but we're much better prepared now with vaccinations and a number of the other tools that we know that work. And we may yet still have to use some of them short of shutdowns, um, like using masks and, you know, having seasonal things to manage manage that risk. But we should be on a, on a path to um, a more normal or getting back to a, a, a new normal one of the things that, that, that I think you and Greg and I and anyone in business agrees with is you won't be able to cut your way to budget deficits uh, in the public sector, and you're not going to be able to um, to uh, uh, you know you, you you're not going to be able to spend your way to success either in the public sector anymore. It really needs to be driven by the private sector, and you've named a number of the folks in tech and in manufacturing. You've had huge success. Um, bringing companies here to Waterloo Region. How do we, as we manage COVID, economic growth and job creation is really what our job has to be to help us pay the tremendous cost that, is, that COVID has has inflicted, not only here in Waterloo Region, but right across the country. Absolutely. And it starts local. You know, I, I recently did an interview for the Financial Times, uh, FDI Intelligence, and uh, I used the, uh, the well- worn and, and very true expression in economic development, which goes something like this, that you never walk past an old friend to greet a new one. And so each of our cities and townships have anchor companies. And, uh, you know, this is a time where we have to basically take a pulse check. Uh, and especially those companies that are 
that are seeking to grow and are having challenges, let's find out what those challenges are and let's overcome them as a community. And uh, those that are actually, um, you know, currently thinking about retrenching or might be subsidiaries of multinationals that need our help because uh, maybe they don't have the same um, confidence at the headquarters level uh, about uh, the trajectory of, of the uh, of the economy. Those are things that we can actually solve uh, together. And uh, we can shine a light on the recent expansions and that gives decision makers a lot of confidence, right? And so we are blessed because over and above the the anchor companies we have in manufacturing, you know, and, and robotics and artificial intelligence and, and tech, there's a real a really important push in the life sciences space and in uh, health innovation and med tech. And these are areas where we are uniquely qualified with our post-secondary assets and some new anchor companies and partnership with the, uh, the cities and different levels of government. So just across the board, um, you know, the bell tolls for us to, uh, to keep growing and have a, a mindset of growth and expansion. And uh, the only way to do that is to, um, you know, focus on new markets and ensure that we have profitable companies, especially these days, because uh, doing that will help us with, uh, you know, social justice issues. But, you know, another way to deal with affordability is to uh, see if we can actually, uh, you know, move the art stick and increase the median income of of, uh, folks living in Waterloo Region. You know, you don't just sort of snap your fingers and expect that to happen. You need profitable companies to do that. And that's why investment attraction and our, you know, the, the, the accelerators and incubators that support that in the community, the venture capital and our anchor companies, uh, they make up what is a unique ecosystem. It's a globally significant brain belt, I like to call it, you know, with thousands of tech workers and great tech quality, you know, anchored by three great post-secondary institutions in the University of Waterloo, uh, Wilfrid Laurier University and Conestoga College. So big action, my friend. All right. We're going to take a quick break for a news break, and then we'll continue the conversation with Tony Lamantia, President and CEO of Waterloo EDC right after the break. This is Kitchener Today on 570 News. And we're joined by, uh, as uh, b- before the break, with Tony Lamantia, President and CEO of Waterloo Economic Development Corporation. Tony, one of the things that we talked about before is, is what's, what's a, what does the recovery look like a little bit? One of the things that you've been very in leading the charge on here in Waterloo Region is is the need to have shovel-ready sites. When you get those folks that want to invest millions of dollars and, and have a presence here in Waterloo Region, create those jobs, but we got to have the places available for them to, to set up their operations. Why don't you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing on that and, the, and the, I guess the opportunity or risk that's associated with it? Yeah, thanks. You know, I think it's critically important. You're, you're going to need an inventory of shovel-ready sites to be able to respond quickly for uh, two opportunities that are being led by either a, a global multinational or a local intermediary who's lo- looking for space. So you might think of some of our local manufacturing anchor companies that that need to expand, want to expand, have budgeted for an expansion, but uh, you know may not be able to find the industrial land in the region. And if you look at the CBRE report that was released the other day, I mean, it tells a very, very stark story about how challenged we are as a region now on the, you know, so it's critically important on the bright side, you know, the folks in, in the city of Cambridge, you know, the, you know, James Goodman, the team and the folks in, in Kitchener, Brian Bennett and Corey 
and in Waterloo, Justin, and, and elsewhere, just right across the townships as well. We've been working with the region of Waterloo on, on having a good hard look at um, employ, employment lands with regard to industrial in kind of the next five or 10 years. But the urgency, you know, I, I remember this being an issue back when, you know, when Ken Sealing was the regional chair and we expected us, you know, to be challenged with industrial lands, you know, sometime around 2025. Well, lo and behold, here we are. And it's a, it's the blessing and the curse of the net migration into, you know, the awesomeness that is Waterloo Region, uh, but also the interest in our uh, in our talent, but more importantly, our tech resources and our manufacturing companies. So, this is uh, this is table stakes, you know, for anybody involved in economic development and investment promotion. It goes above and beyond uh, investment readiness because we're really talking about the future of our anchor companies. You know, and, and our three cities and townships have to make sure that um, in collaboration with the region, we actually have a place for these companies to go when they want to expand. And, and uh, you know, I'm not even talking about mega sites here. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, 500 acres for a battery, pl- an EV battery plant. I'm talking about, you know, uh, 100 to 200 to 300 acres. Uh, we just need more of those sites in the region. There's a lot of work to be done. We highlighted it as a critically important issue. And I can tell you that I have a I have a team that has been working insane hours, you know, nights and weekends responding to RFIs. And we've actually had some of these intermediaries come back to us and say, you sure you don't have anything? Because we really want to be in Waterloo Region. Can you know, can you give us an update and can you be more creative? So listen, um, you know, it's a full court press, and I can't emphasize enough how important it is for you know the uh the civic leadership and those in positions to actually make things happen and to actually uh, get to work and make it happen. Well, I think as we, as we uh, know, it's election season, not only is it a provincial election on June the 2nd, but there's municipal elections coming up in, uh, uh, in, uh, and at the end of October. And this will be one of those issues, as you know, that the chamber holds candidate forums for the mayors and the city councilor or um, uh, the regional chair. This will be one of those issues because it, it will drive, especially locally, that's that a lot of this is driven by regional and local governments, as you talked about. And it's going to be top of mind for us because for you to do the job that you need to do, um, those local officials need to do theirs. Listen, um, we've got a few minutes left, four or five minutes left, but I want to cover it up um, and, and maybe make it a little more open-ended. We have... <clears throat> um, we're coming through COVID. We're towards the end of that. We talked about that. There's it's political season. We know there are issues like housing and the, you know, the jobs and the talent for the new economy moving forward. Um, But as you, as you look to your, uh, into your crystal ball um, over the next 12 months, what what do you see? What are the issues that are going to be the things that that will that will drive our our future in the next twelve months in water to region. You know, I think that once there's a bit more clarity on the situation in Europe, um, we're going to see an accelerated interest in you know places to park investment money and capital across North America. And uh, when you look at the landscape. Canada in particular and Waterloo region uh, really do stand out as, as uh, you know, uh, as great places to invest. You know, having said that, um, listen, we've come through a very, very challenging couple of years. And, 
as in much the same way as I was stunned at the bounce back in 2021, um, I, I sense that we're going to be in a more uneven environment, certainly for the next couple of months, because there's a lot of fallout with regard to, you know, post pandemic, uh, you know, are we able, are we going to be able to fully open up? What's that, what's that going to look like? Um, is the, you know, the investment environment across the board going to um, portend more interest in our region? Like I've got to tell you the unsolicited interest uh, not just by existing companies, but, you know, uh, intermediaries for foreign companies has never been, never been greater. It's, you know, pipelines very, very full. And more importantly, what does the, um, you know, what, what does the existing community face with regard to its existing challenges? You know, we already have a huge talent challenge across the board. I think we need to change the metrics on, on how we benchmark new talent coming into the region. Um, and I'd say the thing that's going to drive the most short-term economic development and investment is, is the trade dynamic. So for those trade-exposed industries uh, globally, but more importantly, given the U.S.-Canada dynamic and by America, you're going to see more supply chain localization. Mm-hmm. And that, that can cut both ways. You know, in, in, for, you know, as an example, Toyota to get more key suppliers up here, and uh, across the board for other companies, especially given the challenges that we had with the blockades at the bridges, it's, it's all of those uh, time to market, uh, you know, just in time delivery, sensitive manufacturing concerns are having a good hard look at their global supply chain. And that's both an opportunity and a threat. So, you know, uh, optimistic about where Waterloo region factors into this. You know, and you might say, well, Tony, how do you know? Well, one of the ways you, you, you can tell is just by the, you know, on the basis of demand and uh, back to shovel-ready sites and, and the, the, the dearth that we have, just, you know, what uh, what serviced industrial is going for. I mean, I, I don't want to reveal too much, but we, we recently had serviced industrial uh, in this community go for $1.2 million. Yeah. And, and, you know, three years ago, four years ago, we were losing deals to, you know, parts of southwestern Ontario um, that were more, you know, uh, sensitive, cost sensitive. And, you know, uh, 300 and change was considered too expensive. But people want to come to the region. There's great interest, especially among uh, GTA developers. Um, you know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a sweet spot. And so uh, for all those reasons, I'm optimistic. But we just got to make sure that it's done uh, in a way that actually improves social and economic life in Waterloo Region. Listen, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us today, Tony. Uh, you're doing a great job and and really important uh, for the future of our of our community is is maintaining the uh, the 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 sense of momentum of having new jobs and the jobs well paying jobs that that can support uh, the community that we have. So thanks for joining us. We've been joined by our good friend. Tony Lamantia, he's the president and CEO of Waterloo EDC. It is time for a news break. Coming up after the news, we'll be joined uh, by the mayor of Waterloo, Dave Jaworski, and we're going to do political memoirs with Dave. This is Kitchener Today on City News 5-7. And we're back. I am joined by a very good friend of mine um, and someone that is familiar uh, to many of you listening, would be the mayor of Waterloo himself, Dave Jaworski, the guy in purple, I always say, although I see in this Zoom call, you're not wearing purple today. You've probably got a purple tie you're about to put on, but um, you've probably got it. 
Um, and I, Dave, thanks for joining us today. I wanted to um, um, to have you on because you've recently announced that you are not seeking re-election. And I think that would have been, uh, and this is my observation, you don't have to agree with it, but if you'd run again, I think you would have been a safe bet that you would have been uh, a, a very good bet to win election again. But you've you've done two terms of eight years. So I thought we would call this segment the political memoirs segment because I wanted to kind of get a sense of uh, of your of, of the last eight years and kind of some thoughts moving forward. But before we do that, I, I always find it interesting to see where people come from that end up in public office or in, and in public life, because everyone's different. So why don't you, I mean, for those that know you and know you as the mayor, what, what, what was your career path? How, where did, where did you start and how did you, how did you kind of um, uh, move along the path to being mayor? Well, thank you very much, Ian, for having me. And thank you and to your family, great community leaders uh, uh, with Walter and his great contribution, a bit of a mentor of mine through these uh, trying times as mayor. And, uh, you know, y- y- you think about it, Ian, of where, where you start off with. You're, you're out of high school. You're looking for where you want to go to school. And my, my, my uh, secondary school had just got Radio Shack TRS-80 computers. They seem to be a good thing. And so I decided to study computer science at University of Waterloo. Uh, Jan and I met there. We did all our IBM co-op terms together. And subsequently, when it came time to say, do we want to live you know, uh, here, there, or wherever it uh, came to be in in our community in Waterloo Region, and we decided to uh, stay here. And I I spent uh, 25 years in business, most recently at BlackBerry for about 12 years. Before that, a company called Software AG on Savage Drive in in uh, in in Cambridge, and uh, just you know, lots of good experiences here in our community. And if I I think about it, around age 35, which uh, seems like a long time ago now. Um, they really decided to try and get into volunteerism. I met with uh, Rosemary Smith, who I'm sure many listeners know of the KW Community Foundation. Um, I eventually got on the KW Community Foundation Grants Committee, and from there it just exploded. As you know, I was on the Chamber of Commerce Board, uh, Secretary of the Board, Vice Chair of Communitech Board at one point in time. Uh, uh, let's see, I've covered the Community Foundation. Oh, uh, Communitech, I was on that board. And then the Waddle Minor Hockey, Waddle Minor Soccer, and if anything, I credit all that volunteerism to getting to, to meet different people. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, really the job of, of mayor or councillor is serving different neighborhoods, different people, different experiences. And so, um, you know, it wasn't on my mind, but uh, as, as you alluded to, uh, certainly I did government relations for, for BlackBerry for Research in Motion. I was more on the, on the commercial side of working with government. Um, but then, you know, my time, my time at BlackBerry came to an end. Uh, the company had shed about 8,000 jobs um, mm-hmm. locally, and we're all wondering what we're going to, to do, not personally, but as a community. And what we really want to do is keep all that top talent here back in 2012, 2013. And then a number of friends convinced me to, uh, to run for mayor and uh, ran, ran an effective campaign. And then... Uh, Kind of like you said, Ian, like, you know, uh, once you're an incumbent and you're, as long as the place didn't burn down, people are generally happy. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that really led to my decision that at some point you quote, have to fire yourself. And, yeah. uh, and I'm sure we'll get into that, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what brought me to, uh, to being mayor. Well, you know, and I, I think it's, it's always interesting to hear those stories because everyone starts somewhere, everyone, you you know, you never start as the senior person that you are with all the experiences. Um, 
but I think in, in a lot of ways, Waterloo, city of Waterloo and the region of Waterloo is um, in the grand scheme of things in a global context, fairly small, but we punch above our weight. We're, we're known for a lot of different things around the world. Maybe just before we get on to, you know, just your lot, your, your, your time as mayor, um, being part of BlackBerry, which was a global company, grew fast. You were doing government relations with, with the, you know, in the national and international realm. But also you spent a lot of years, I don't know whether it was six or eight years on the chamber board, but you, you got a sense and an understanding of the way that the Waterloo, Greater KW Chamber fit into the Ontario landscape and then the, the national landscape um, uh, as, a, as a business centre here. Did those experiences, uh, I mean, give you the round out your experiences because as a mayor, well, you know, a lot of that's potholes and doing some of the local stuff, but, but there's also an international, and we see this in the pandemic. We see this in, in a number of different ways where local municipalities actually play a huge role in national and international affairs. How, how did those two, you know, the chamber um, getting to know that, that part um, of of how institutions can be global in nature, and and your experience at, at BlackBerry help help prepare you. Well, when you when you're on the chamber board, Ian, that's when you realize of the whatever uh, fifteen hundred to two thousand members that uh, the the local KW chamber has, plus more in Cambridge for sure. That you realize how many small businesses there are. And if you think and how few big businesses there are, you can you can name them on a couple of hands. And you think about it, you know, if if you can get those one thousand small businesses to hire one more person or two more people, that's two thousand more jobs. But to get a, a large company to say I'm going to hire two thousand more people is is a yep. bit of a challenge. You know, BlackBerry wasn't at, at at some points in times, but also the negative comes with that too, where you're shedding two thousand jobs at a time. So you know, it's really about our small businesses and helping them. And uh, you know, you think about uh, Waterloo EDC. That was something that was created in the past two terms of of council and uh, to attract more businesses to our community, and they get to see what a wonderful community it is with the. Mm-hmm. Laurier and Waterloo and Conestoga College and the urban rural fabric and the the proximity to Toronto and now our and now our own airport doing so well with Flair Airlines and uh, under the leadership there at the with Chris Wood at the region you know we've done so so well we've always tried to to punch above our weight and then on many uh, trips with uh, Tony's team to uh, on missions to say California or Germany. Uh, to thank a lot of like you, you wouldn't believe how many of our uh, companies have uh, a heritage of Germany. Mm-hmm. You might think of Oktoberfest and that, but that's not related. It's a uh, they still have a great heritage of Germany. And uh, just while I'm on the the trips, that's how I knew it was time to leave. When I've done six international trips in seven years, uh, one with Jan, five with Barry, that had to stop. <laughs> well, you know, one thing that I give kudos to everyone in public office. I did my seven years as a city councillor. My dad, as you mentioned, was 15 years in parliament. It, it takes a tremendous toll of, well, it's a sacrifice of sorts. We do it willingly, but it does take time away from, from loved ones. And so um, on a personal note, I wish you and Jan well in the next chapter. But before you, before we said you, you've got a, a number of months to get through until the election in November, so you're, or uh, the change of council in December, so you're not gone yet. So I thought maybe one of the things I wanted to do um, uh, in the last few minutes, 10 minutes or so we have, 
what would be you've had eight eight years more or less in office um it wasn't like some people are like politics is what they want to do and that's what they strive towards that's not your case um but what did you what what would your observations be last eight years what are, what would be your top three takeaways um from your eight years as mayor well certainly i think um i think back to um why I would want to run again for a third term. And I certainly did. And it was just uh, over a bit of reflection. I said, you know, this is actually the perfect time to pass the baton. And we'll talk about that later. But mm. you look at light rail transit. It's like open heart surgery on your community, right? And we got through that. And you can see all the intensification and, and yep. the value of that, but saving the farmland. And now I see a number of my neighbors here in uh, the Beechwood area of Waterloo, um, in about my age, are actually selling their homes. They're, they're empty nesters. So now it's going to go to a from a two-person home to a, now somebody with four or five people in their home. And in the meantime, they're moving uptown. And they're taking all their uh, all the all their, all their wealth, and they're spending it in an urban core, right? So they've relocated, and they're right sizing to something as opposed to you know some people may want to live in their own home for for till they're seventy five or eighty five or something like that, but other people now we have options, and there's all the great local restaurants and dining and services in uptown Waterloo, and all along the uh, central yep. corridor. That's why we need to build it to Cambridge. So that's one thing. Um, you think about, uh, well, we've been through, even in the early days, the Syrian refugee crisis, the mm-hmm. Afghan refugee crisis, and yet another one on our hands with uh, Ukraine. You know, it's it's those kinds of resettlement where we really punched above our weight in helping people resettle here in Waterloo Region uh, in the first uh, humanitarian crisis. And that, that would be a, a big thing. But you know, we have a vibrant uptown Waterloo, uh, the trails that we've built and continue to build to make sure that active transportation is something we can do. Uh, we're going to have to fight climate change. We only have eight more years to to work on that. Uh, we've ha- installed our, our last ever arterial road, Platinum Drive, on the west side of Waterloo, connecting Columbia to, uh, I always say to Hurley's. It's easy way for people to remember. It's like it was Columbia to Hurley's. <laughs> um, the splash pads that we've installed. And then 2022, Ian, is going to be a banner year with a new adult rec complex, yeah. new gymnasium, the rejuvenated Silver Lake, formerly Canada's only walkable lake. And a new library on the east side at Rim Park. So it's going to be a banner year, lots of stuff to clean up to uh, uh, for me to work on while the uh, the municipal election takes place. Well, and I think um, in, we'll just, we're going to take a break in just a minute or so. But, you know, I think one of the things that 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 is that, that we have to keep in mind is the last two years and, and kudos to those that have been in public service, because this has been probably the worst two years of of all time to be have to be in a decision-making position because really I don't think there was any good answers. There's only only description or versions of bad because things were not that great. But so it's felt like dog years, right? Like two years, it, it feels like it wasn't two years. It feels like it was probably 10. Um, and that's, that will have, that will have colored, I, you know, I assume will, would be the other factor is that that took a, probably took a lot out of you because it took a tremendous amount of, time and energy to get through this last two years. 
Well, I think you're doing you're doing a lot of thinking on things that haven't been thought of in over in hundred years for sure, Ian. That's that's one thing. But number two, you're seeing so much suffering in our in our own community, whether it be in particular with small businesses or people yeah. who have uh, various uh, jobs. The housing market's been crazy. Um, but if I was to say the one thing that I've really missed is seeing people. You know, certainly uh, Barry, Karen, Catherine, and I are invited to about a thousand events a year. We try and do four hundred, if not five hundred, a year. And uh, today is a banner day. I actually have uh, three. Um, I don't think I've had three in maybe since September, or maybe in two years. It just doesn't happen anymore. And that's, but that I mean a live event. And yeah. I, I think that that's. Uh, you know, really something that uh, we really miss as uh, leaders in the community, whether it be my counselors or, or whatever, just to see people because that really that builds that connection. And that's the that, that's the people who we serve. And we really like to see them often. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back after the break, we'll continue our conversation with the mayor of Waterloo, Dave Jaworski. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Well, welcome back, and we are joined for the back half of this uh, this half hour with our good friend Mayor Dave Jaworski from the City of Waterloo. And this this segment that we're calling the political memoirs of a happy warrior, because he is certainly happy. And I do say that I, I I I for those that don't see you all the time, Dave, you have made a habit for eight years of wearing something purple to every public event that you've been to. And I love it because I, I look forward to your, uh, your splash of color uh, purple uh, every time I see you. So listen, before the break, we were talking a little bit about your, your background, what led to your, to your hours or your years in, of service uh, to the community of which we should all be grateful. Um but I, I thought maybe one of the things you mentioned when I asked you to come on is, hey, oh, I, you know, we should probably, I'd like to give a little bit of some thoughts or advice or, you know, some things to think about for, for, for anyone that's thinking about presenting themselves for public office, whether that's to replace you, to be a city councillor or a school board trustee. What, what, are, what's, what's, uh, what are a couple pieces of, of advice that people should consider before they, before they throw their hat in the ring? Well, I think it's uh, to, certainly to, to look in the mirror and to say, am I ready for the ultimate community job? And there should be lots of people who are ready for the ultimate community job in our community, you know, having some leadership skills. You don't have to have uh, everything. The, the one thing I need to say, Ian, when you are elected, you are surrounded with great people at the sure. city of Waterloo, the region of Waterloo, the leadership teams, the staff teams, the management, uh, fellow colleagues. I'll often say that I I think I have the best city council, urban council in all of Canada, uh, just because, uh, you know, just working together, that cooperative spirit. And I bet you, I bet there's a lot of mayors who, who might, who might say that as well. So that's one thing you're going to be surrounded with great people. Um, the, the challenges are, are tough, but, uh, the good from a good news standpoint, in a lot of cases, you become the expert. Uh, there's the Malcolm Gladwell book about 10,000 hours, right? And you become the, the expert. And then he, he alludes to the Beatles and how they got their experience and how they became the best band of all time. And, you know, as a mayor, you're, you're, you're reading, you're, you got lots of uh, top talent advising you. And then you have all the, the brilliant people who are the uh, CEOs of our, of our charities, like uh, Wendy Campbell, who is on uh, uh, International Women's Day, hosted by the Chamber this morning with Karen Redmond. You know, you're, you're not alone by any means. So that, that's, that's the one good thing. 
Um, I, I shouldn't say the one good thing. <laughs> There's lots of good things about this job. Trust me. You know, it's a uh, it, and it's that cooperative spirit that we've really fostered here. That uh, when we go on a mission, as an example, with Tony Lamantia of Waterloo EDC, that we're trying to bring jobs to Waterloo region, where the company physically sets up is unimportant because people will get to those jobs whether they be from Cambridge, Woolwich, North Dumfries, uh, Wellesley, Wilmot. Uh, Kitchener, or even Waterloo. We're not worried about that. And uh, that's the important thing. We're building a strong region at the end of the uh, uh, Waterloo-Toronto corridor, and it's a great economic environment. Lots of challenges to be faced, but you're you're working with with people on it. So that's that's one thing I'd say. Hopefully you have some volunteerism. Maybe um, for some of the things that we're working on with equity, some lived experiences would, would be uh, very useful uh, mm-hmm. nowadays. But as long as you're willing to put your brain to it, to do the reading, um, uh, for, for city councillors, I say anybody who can get uh, Mondays off um, from their work, and a lot can, um, or maybe they're, uh, they're, they're not working uh, at this time or they're retired or something like that, you know, we, they can, they can fit it into their schedule, do the reading on their own time. It's, it's a great, uh, a great experience for everyone. And it can be four years, eight years, 12 years, or, uh, beyond, as we know, with, uh, Mayor Gordon Kronz, who was first elected, uh, on Milton council in 1962. Wow. That's amazing. I guess the one thing, and I think you, you kind of alluded to this maybe before we went on, uh, when we've talked about it before, for elected officials, uh, you don't always have to have the answer. I, th- I think one of the things, and the, the, some of us have opinions to be sure, but listening and learning is is one of the best skills that you can uh, that you can have on on city council. That you can listen and you can learn from others. Um, that you consult widely too, and really try and develop that um, th- that as much as is possible a consensus opinion on w- whether it's development or the the, the difficult decisions or budgets that councils have to do and then i think above all and i think you do a good job of this in particular is explain the final decision because what i can assure you and you've learned this for eight years is doesn't matter what your decision is there will be people who will tell you why you're wrong i think one of the most important things is to explain why you may not made the decisions that you did not tell them why they're wrong and you're right but explain how you came to your decision is that i mean that to me is is something i think you've been very good at over eight years and i think it's 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 a valuable lesson for for those thinking about public office that that would be an important skill well for sure ian i i think i i start i started laughing a bit because it made me think of somehow those covid bike lanes yeah (laughs) but you know we we uh, you know, at that point in time, we were making that decision. It was like the early weeks of COVID, and we could see that public transit was becoming a super spreader event in municipalities around the world. And we said people needed a different way to to uh, to get around. And so what we did is we instantly uh, rented some cones, uh, put out space so people could cycle. If you remember at that time, there was research coming out from from uh, the Netherlands that said you need to bike like 10 meters behind somebody because you could catch COVID. This was the early days. We're making things up as we went. And so we said, we need to keep people safe. And uh, so that's what we decided to do. Um, I actually, I rode those bike lanes myself. I really wish a lot more people would have rode those bike lanes. But anyway, that's uh, that's part of the explanation that, you know, in, in retrospect, they say, did we need them? 
Eh, maybe not, but uh, certainly it was a, a a decent choice at the time. I still believe, um, uh, based on the information that we had, and uh, that, that's the best you can do. And that's probably a great example of where you sometimes have to uh, um, go follow follow uh, do do the right thing. You know, yeah. we've had uh, complicated decisions before, and you know, could be this, could be that, could cost this much, could cost that much. At the end of the day, what's the right thing to do here? Yeah. And at that time, we thought that was the right thing to do. And um, that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, Ian. Oh, that's a good story. Listen, we're down to our last 45 seconds, but I want to get you on the record so I can have you back on on either business to business or at some point in the next year. Tell me in your crystal ball as you gaze into into it, what's the 12, next 12 months look like? Well, you know, we're going to get out of COVID. We'll be uh, pulling off those um, uh, state of emergencies. We'll be getting back to normal. But you watch, back in the fall timeframe, people are going to start wearing their own masks again. And we're going to be safe from flu and from colds. Um, Once springtime comes next year, we'll be a lot back to normal. We're going to be a vibrant community. I'm going to get a new barbecue finally uh, once I retire. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a great community with lots going on. And I I look forward to clapping and applauding in the the new mayor when they start. New inauguration day, uh, November 15th this time around. All right. That's awesome. Listen, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. We've been joined by our good friend, Dave Jaworski, he, of course, is the mayor of Waterloo. We're going to take a quick break, uh, and we'll be back with more on uh, Kitchener Today on City News 570. Well, welcome back, and we are joined by a good friend of mine and uh, and someone that the community all owes a tremendous debt of gratitude uh, to, which is Lee Fairclaw. She is the president and CEO of the St. Mary's General Hospital, and she, along with her colleagues, and uh, Patrick Gaskin at, at Cambridge Memorial and Ron Gagne at the uh, at Grand River Hospital have been uh, superheroes along with their staff. I know you would put most of that on your frontline staff tremendously, but but uh, our hospitals and healthcare providers um, have have done so much over the last two years. So it's always great to have you. I appreciate you taking a bit of time uh, to join us uh, on um, on Kitchener today, to, uh, Lee. Um, one of the things that I, I thought we we should we and we talk reasonably frequently through this, uh, as so we're getting messaging out to the business community and the broader community. Why don't you give an update of where your sense of where we're at right now? We've had mm-hmm. some of the public health measures um, lifted. We've we've we we see the numbers seem to be coming down in terms of hospitalizations and ICUs and and even I think in, in most measures. But where where do you think we're at in terms of uh, uh, from your perspective at the hospital? Thanks, Ian. Well, I mean, I think I'll start by saying we're certainly in a very different place than we were in January. You know, January for sure was one of the uh, uh, the kind of highest peaks we've ever seen in COVID cases. And then as a result, of course, uh, we saw a, a number of patients being admitted to hospital, the highest that we've seen through the, the entire pandemic. So things are certainly looking much better from that perspective, uh, you know, today in terms of the number of patients in hospital across our Waterloo-Wellington area, it would be about 36 patients. Um, So that's really come down. Um, Still striking to me, though, um, is how long those that were admitted for COVID are staying in our hospitals. So uh, even today at St. Mary's, for example, we have a, you know, a small number that are actively infectious, but we have 19 that are still getting ongoing care 
um, you know, and and uh, and I think that we'll see that trend for some time. Um, provincially as well, you know, I think from the ICU perspective, we're we're down to 821 patients in the ICU, so things are things are really starting to look better. But again, um, you know, we're we're all ca- kind of cautiously optimistic in the healthcare system. Um, I think in in terms of the community, um, you know, I think Dr. Karen Moore sort of made this point yesterday that. Um, you know, probably there's a lot more COVID circulating in our communities than we're even really aware of. And um, some of the trends that we're starting to see in the wastewater would tell us that things are, are maybe starting to, to plateau a little bit. I would say in the hospital, though, what we really are concerned and wanting to do now is really get back to being able to offer uh, surgical procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been able to resume imaging uh, to almost 100%. Um, most of the hospitals have started seeing patients, at least for outpatient procedures where we can, but we are still very challenged um, due to bed capacity to, to ramp up to the levels we need to. So currently across, uh, across our hospitals in the region, we're anywhere from 64 to 71% kind of back to resuming to where we need to be on surgery. Now, you know, we, we've seen that, um, and I'll make this comment, uh, that that the lockdowns in the, or shut, business shutdowns, community shutdowns that have had to take place over the last, uh, the last four lockdowns are all driven by the fact that we were at the tipping point, almost breaking point of our healthcare sector. Mm-hmm. So the good news is those are coming down, but what has not happened in two years is you've never really gotten a break. So, and I, I, I'm conscious of this, I see this in business. We see a lot of this in business and I'm, uh, you know, and what, I'm on the police services board. So you see this with frontline workers like police and, and EMTs and, uh, and, and fire, the fire service, but certainly hospital. And you take, whether it's clinicians, nurses, uh, you know, uh, patient aides, doctors, take your pick. How are, how is, you know, there must be a tremendous amount of stress and tiredness within the system and I think that's something that's not getting talked about enough is that mm-hmm. when we talk about the resilience of the system, it's not just the beds or the or the infrastructure, it's the in mm-hmm. most ways, the people. How are how are your people doing? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. Um, and it's something very much on our minds. So first of all, to say again, we've we've asked extraordinary things of people um, in the last few months to be able to respond to Omicron. Um, and now you know, now certainly our teams are feeling the pressure to get back uh, to pr- providing some of those other services, but they they are tired and they are weary and, and they need a break. Um, you know, I think, you know, I think tomorrow might be the anniversary of the first case in this region, uh, the two-year anniversary of the first case in this region. We've been asking this of healthcare workers for two years. Mm-hmm. And we've been asking this of, of the leaders, the managers, everybody in the hospital, like everybody in our team to be really, you know, rising to with the rise of each wave to the challenge of COVID and then rising to respond to all the other care that we didn't do in between each wave. And it has been constant. I actually, uh, your question is timely. I actually um, uh, listened to um, Dr. Margaret McKinnon this morning, who has done some very important research on the impact of the pandemic on staff. And, uh, you know, one of, there's a couple of things that stood out, many things that stood out, but one of the things that stood out is that 25% of uh, healthcare workers are experiencing symptoms of PTSD. 
um, seven of 10 are feeling a sense of moral injury because of the what the way we've needed to work and, and um, you know, at times a feeling that we've not been able to do as much as we normally might do for patients and carrying that weight um, or even asking, even as managers and leaders asking our, our staff, you know, to go beyond and above so, so often. Um, these are really serious things. You know, these are things that um, we certainly have put a lot of effort into trying to support the mental health and wellness of our staff as we've gone. Um, but we're seeing we're seeing trends as a result. We've seen a lot of people hold on because they didn't want to leave the team uh, through the pandemic. So they've hold on and not retired and now they're retiring. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's, it's time. Uh, we're seeing some others that are choosing to kind of to work in other places. And, and I think all at the hospital, like we're putting just a lot of thought into how are we, how are we going to go through the next several months? And um, this is where I would, you know, say again, I, we, we know how serious it is that there's such a long backlog uh, mm-hmm. for care, but at the same token, we've, we've got to do it at a, at a pace that we won't lose anybody else uh, from the healthcare work. So, um, and we're going to go to a break in a few minutes and then come back on the other side because I want to, there's a couple more things I want to get to. One is um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were, we were, we have been short, uh, uh, short uh, of beds across Waterloo region. If you, if all yeah. three hospitals combined for a long period of time for, and this is, this was well before COVID. We got some surge funding and beds, which have been, Thank God we had them, or we never would have gotten through them. Yeah. But those are basically table stakes. Those aren't anything that can be taken away. Those need to stay here where where our community has grown. We did. Mm-hmm. We, we need those just to be in place right now. But frankly, we don't have. Um, we we know we need more. We need the mm-hmm. beds that we already have plus more. But this is on both fronts. This is on. We need more people, and we need more funding for beds and then we'll, in a minute we'll talk about the new infrastructure that's needed but talk about that just before we go to break the importance of of understanding the baseline that we should be starting to talk with our own community about and government of what are what's the number of beds that we need uh in a very complex way but but give mm-hmm. an order of magnitude for people to understand what we need to service the population we have here in Waterloo region so first of all, you're absolutely right, Ian. We've got all the beds that we've opened, which is 152 additional beds between just uh, St. Mary's and Grand River Hospitals, for example, um, which has been an additional 41 at St. Mary's. We have to hold on to those. Like all of our measures of occupancy right now are keeping those open. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and they are in full use and we've got to continue to staff those. I think that as we look out 25 years, uh, we are going to need an additional 515 beds. Um, and, you know, and over the between now and that time, uh, you know, we are incrementally each year, just given the population growth and, and aging in this region, we are going to need to incrementally need more. So it's um, this is something that both uh, I know Ron and I are very consumed and seized with. Um, as well as other hospitals across WW Wealth in particular, uh, all of us are really needing to be sure that we can uh, hold on to the current capacity, but make sure that it increases as well. Okay, well, I think we'll take a, this is a good time to take a quick break. We're gonna do a news break. And then when we come back on the other side, Lee, you'll stick with us and we'll we'll continue the conversation because I wanna talk about the what's, what the community is starting before, which is the request to do the study 
for a new new hospital that we need that we know all the metrics show but we've got to prove the case so when we come back after the break uh, we'll uh, we'll continue with that conversation you're listening to city news uh city uh, kitchener today on city news 57 and we are indeed back and we are joined again by uh, the, the ceo of the st mary's general hospital lee fairclaw and uh Lee, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us and take pity on me today to make sure I had great guests on uh, Kitchener today on City News 570. So I appreciate you joining us. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about kind of where we were uh, before COVID and some of the stresses that were on your staff and the system and, and what COVID has exposed. One of the things certainly the business community have been talking about for a long time, and I think you obviously have been doing lots of work uh, in the in with your colleagues is, you know, what do we do for the future? I mean, I think it's obvious, patently obvious to the business community. And I think if you talk to Chris Albinson at Communitech or Jamie Schlegel at the Schlegels, um, that we need a new hospital. The real question is, what does that look like, and how how do we best serve the community? I think those are those those are the questions. But certainly, the business community says would say we need a new hospital. Where are we at on that, and and what is some of the work that you're doing um, to kind of, you know, fill in the gaps of whether that in fact is mm-hmm. the feeling that we have is a true one, and and where we where mm-hmm. we go, and and how can the community support it? Yeah, there's no there's no question that even just kind of working through the pandemic to serve the community has put a pretty fine point on the fact that, uh, you know. We are we are we are bursting at the seams at our hospitals in this area. Um, there's a, a real need to be sure that we can look at how we can renew uh, that that infrastructure into the future and and really to to change the size of it. So when we look at a few stats of what we can expect, and this is some of the work we started to do, is to really think through what what is going to be needed. Um, you know, you look at some of those stats. The the population itself is uh, growing so quickly in this region. Um, it's you know it's expected to be up over 900,000 in 20 years, which is an increase of 45%. And the population over 75 that often does need some of the acute care services that we offer, you know, is going to increase by about 169%. So when you start thinking about that and you start imagining, okay, what are the hospitals? Uh, the size of the hospitals you're going to need, we really need to start planning and thinking it through. But the other side of that is, and I love uh, listening to Chris Albison and others talk about uh, the huge success in this community around innovation um, and what it's meaning to draw businesses to this community. And we really need to be sure that our hospital facilities are kind of on par with what the, what what we're doing in the community. So 50% of our hospitals are older than 50 years old. Where I'm sitting at St. Mary's today, uh, we'll be celebrating the 100th anniversary of it and this space, mm-hmm. uh, you know, next year. So I think that, you know, I think that um, what's really striking is that the the facilities themselves are in need of renewal. And if we want to keep drawing business, drawing t- talent, drawing others, they 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 want to know that they've got healthcare facilities that are kind of on par. To what they would expect. The care that we're providing, we are proud of, and you know, St. Mary's is very pleased. This week, we made the uh, the global listing of uh, best hospitals in the world, and so we're proud of the care. 
But I can tell you when we did our own strategic plan, the number one thing we heard needed to improve and be addressed through our strategy was an improvement to the facilities. So, you know, um, we're really looking at this closely as hospitals together. How are we going to best be able to serve the community for the future? Um, and it's clear. There's no question. We are going to need more hospital facilities as we go ahead. No, so, I mean, this is a, none of these things, when you're talking about, you know, this is huge bucks. And we know the latest hospital in Vaughan, I think it was the, um, well, in, in or New York. Colucci. Colucci. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. These are not things that happen quickly. Uh, no. There's a lot of decisions that need, need to, or a lot of information needed, needs to go through decision-making at bureaucracies and health, you know, health professionals, and then ultimately the cabinet and make it into a budget. There's a long way to go. Where are we at just in, in terms of the, or what are the things that the community can do to say we want and need our fair share so we can be a community that has health care that we deserve, like everyone else across the province, but also given the fact that we are an economic magnet, as you referenced Chris Albinson and others talking about, we actually are, are uh, in some ways, one of the golden gooses that lay, or the goose that lays the golden eggs for Ontario. But we need that. We need that world class healthcare. What? Are, what? Are, where are we at? Or what are the things that the that the community can do to support that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first of all, I, the number one thing the community can do to, to uh, support that is to to voice their opinions <laughs> when people are asked. Um, you know, if you you've had an experience in hospital recently and you and you believe that we do need to renew some of it, I can tell you probably the majority of people that have had care mm-hmm. at St. Mary's recently in an inpatient ward would, would probably feel that way, um, is to voice to voice their views. I think that, um, you know, to these these big projects like the Cordelucci, you know, they take several years and there's several stages of planning. And mm-hmm. along each of those stages, you know, you'll be engaging people quite directly, actually, to help shape it. So, um, you know, I think that um, that that sort of natural process that you go through to secure it will be will be um, something that we will be wanting to pursue. The other thing is, um, you know, is the is the first gate, which is to be sure that we can secure some funding to help us to do that detailed planning. So those are all of the, the steps, Ian. Um, and as I say, from a community perspective, um, in those moments when asked about what matters to support a thriving community in the in this region, um, you know, I, I would express your opinions <laughs> yeah. about uh, the need to renew our, our hospital and our hospital infrastructure. Well, you can rest assured that uh, as we go through budget season and, and coming into provincial election that uh, the business community and, and Greg at the Cambridge Chamber and myself and uh, Communitech and Explore Waterloo and WDC uh, are all banging the the pots on this one. We we all know that you don't get talent and people living in communities without healthcare. And that's why our chamber has been leading on physician recruitment, family physician recruitment for 20 odd years is um, people coming and living in a community. They want to know that they have healthcare, the healthcare they need when they need it. And that means people, and it means uh, infrastructure. So you've uh, you've already sold me a long time ago, and you do a great job <laughs> of, of doing this. What I would say in the last in the last minute or so, Lee, mm-hmm. would you come back on maybe with um, with Ron and your colleague Patrick? Because I think this is a this mm-hmm. is something that is 
the whole region needs to get behind. Um, so mm -hmm. at, when it's when it's uh, suitable, unless they've canceled me during this actual uh, three hours on the air, they are threatening to put me back on in uh, for a few more Fridays. So pick a Friday between now and middle of April. Come back on. Maybe we'll spend a full hour because this is such an important topic <laughs> that it it needs. We need to get understand some of the details and then mm -hmm. how do we mobilize individuals and organizations to to get the result we need. I would love to do that. And we're, you know, we are really working closely together as leaders on, on this. And so I think it, it would be great uh, to come back together. So um, particularly myself and, uh, and Ron at uh, Grand River, you know, both of us have very aged facilities. Um, Patrick is moving his way through a, a, a long uh, building effort that they've been through. So thank you for that invitation, Ian. All right. Well, we'll have you back on. Thanks so much. We've been joined by our good friend, uh, uh, Lee Fairclaw, and she is the CEO of the St. Mary's General Hospital. Listen, it's been a pleasure being with you today. To all my guests who took pity on me and came on, including Lee and Greg DeRocher and Tony Lamantia and uh, Alistair Scorgi, uh, and who am I missing? I'm missing, oh, Mayor Dave Jaworski. Thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you to, our, to the listeners for joining us today. Um, a special shout out to producer Polly and Brittany Bordelon for making this actually fun. And I don't think I stumbled too badly. And it's all because I actually work with professionals that are much smarter than me, uh, which is which is a wise thing to do. Now we're over to the news world. You're listening to City News on City News 570.